Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Skullcast, the premier podcast about Berserk from the community at Skullnight.net. I am your eternal host, Walter, and joining me today are Azil. Hey, everybody. And Grail. Hello. We're back, episode 127. I keep thinking we're like in the 100 teens, but we're way past those. In my head, we're stuck in the teen years, but we're already in our 20s. 120s. <laughs> but we're here to kind of in the middle of our volume 28 reread. Uh, and before we jump straight into that, there's no real berserk news, as there typically is not in recent months. But by the time this podcast comes out, it will be around a year since Miura had passed away. It doesn't really, it's kind of this weird limbo where it feels like it's been way longer than a year. And at the same time, I can't believe it's been a year already kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Weird. Duh, what's the word? Displaced in time feeling. Yeah. yeah. I was really surprised at the thought that it had been a year. And in some ways it still doesn't feel real. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I'd, I still miss him every single day. And if how I'm feeling now is any indication, like I can't imagine still those that actually knew him because I didn't really know him, obviously, you know, someone whose work I admired uh, for even, even if it was a long time in decades, I've been following his work week by week. It's not like I knew the guy. So I'm, I'm I know that it's worse for those that knew him best, like Maury and his friends and family, obviously, and coworkers. So, yeah, right. So the, uh, uh, just another year without Mira. Uh, our first year without Mira. But the show goes on. Volume 28, we're right around the middle point. They just started the battle with the Crocs. Uh, I'll take up the first episode, uh, Mysterious Fog. The group immediately begins dispatching the Crocs, and it's going pretty easily so far with each character using their abilities against them. But Guts can still feel the hunger of the beast as it's sniffing the scent of blood in, in the battle waiting for a moment to be unleashed. Glitz tells himself that he can handle it. If he maintains control, it stays calm. But throughout the episode, it's a struggle for him to keep it in check, and we see him struggling with that. Meanwhile, Shirke is attempting to summon the four kings to protect the little cabin they have, but a standing croc enters through the doorway. The boy looks at the creature, and its eyes go blank, and it turns to leave. Then, Shirke finishes the summoning, but she cautions everyone that it's not going to work like it did against the trolls, because these, are, these creatures are different. They're made of flesh, whereas the trolls were purely astral. So to finish this fight, they'll need to break the control of a nearby caster. So she finds the source tracing the odd to a group of cushions. Serpico dispatches them, and immediately uh, the crocs lose control uh, and go back to being crocs instead of, you know, warrior crocs. <laughs> uh, Serpico at the time notices the fog forms of Ganishka flowing from their no- mouths and nostrils, the monks, not the crocs. Uh, and then Serpico senses something rising from the ocean, which is a giant beast called the Makara. That's the summary. Um, just a couple quick notes, not a whole lot. I feel bad for the crocs almost immediately. Uh, you can see as Guts is dispatching them, it's almost just like they're just meat in the way. And things only go worse with the Crocs. There's, a, I think there's a, um, it's either this episode or the next. Oh, it's the next one. Yeah. There's a Croc that's crying. Oh. <laughs> it's blood coming out of its eyes. <laughs> Poor fella. Uh, anyway, they just get mince-meated. Uh, and he Gretz dispatches them in some pretty creative ways, right through their mouths, of course. 
Um, it's interesting. I feel like this whole scenario with Guts fighting the Crocs and everyone being kind of the battle itself is not like a challenging. It's 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 the other end. It's Guts has this internal battle that he's fighting. That's the focus of the of the actual tension in this episode and the, in the coming episodes. It's not the immediate danger. It's it's the danger that the armor present, presents to the group. Yeah. To me, that's like the whole purpose of this entire encounter, in, including the Makara. It all escalates to Guts being uh, losing control or being kind of forced to, to lose control to finish the fight. Mm-hmm. And then the danger that he poses to the group. Yeah. That's how the sense of urgency is established in this episode. It's through Guts' struggle to stay in control. And I guess he's also getting overwhelmed by the numbers at some point. Yep. The next right. chapter in Isidro's uh, shonen manga. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Shirke says the the Four Kings spell is not going to work, or the summoning is not going to work the same way. I thought that was interesting, just kind of, what's the word, quantifying how the, the spell or the summoning works. Because these aren't like trolls, like she said. They are, you know, normal or corporeal beings that have been in, inhabited by this fog, and they're being controlled. So it can't repel them in the same way. It can't just eviscerate them or turn them to dust or whatever, like the, the, the controls that were caught within the summoning last time. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a great twist on, on the, that spell, uh, which elaborates a bit on what we got with the uh, wooden beam that the ogre uh, was throwing uh, in Enoch, uh, because they have the body of flesh and the, I guess, the cushion casters are the ones inhabiting them. It's not as effective. Um, yeah, I think it's pretty neat. And the whole familiar concept is also a testament to Mira's creativity in uh, introducing new things that are similar, but at the same time, very different from what we got before. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a couple of funny moments here as well. I like how Asidro is doing his best to kind of like flail around to avoid being hit at one point. <laughs> and he happens to flail just perfectly right to all three harpoons miss him. And then uh, gut swings and takes all three out, all three crocs out with one swing. I think there's a moment with Eva Lira as well, where she's telling Farnese to turn them into handbags, like croc skin handbags, <laughs> yeah. purses, crocodile hide bags. Yeah. Um, I suppose that's it for me. I don't have a whole lot to say about this episode. Uh, one thing I, I would add is that the, it's interesting the way the boy compels the crocodile to move on. Uh, it's never quite explained exactly how he does it, whether he's intimidating him or mesmerizing him or something. But it's reminiscent of how he protected Casca from specters in the Condemnation arc. So I thought that yeah. was pretty cool and a nice demonstration of his uh, power before we, we get to see him confront Gus. I hadn't thought to compare it to how he does it with the specters or the, in the possessed. But yeah, it's the exact same uh, ability. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. And at first, looking at this episode, I thought that the white actually goes away from the croc's eye, meaning that it just turns back into a normal croc. But that's actually not what happens. The white is still there and just kind of leaves, and that's all there is to it. Yeah, he's just compelled to go away. Right. Um, Another thing I thought was pretty cool is uh, that even after the attack stops, uh, we see that Guts is still struggling uh, and fighting the armor. So uh, I just thought that was neat. It's not just an on-off thing. Is that even after it's done, he still has to fight to restrain himself. Uh, felt that was uh, pretty neat. 
And I also like how when Shuke informs all of them uh, of where the uh, Christian uh, monks are, uh, Serpico takes the initiative because he's the fastest uh, thanks to his cloak and goes there right away before Gus can even react. So I also thought that was a pretty neat moment for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I didn't really mention yet, and I should have, is the final two-page spread is of the Makara itself. Um, it is a very huge and creepy-looking thing. It's kind of hard at first to kind of decipher what its form is uh, because of the way the different things you're seeing on screen. You just you see it has a giant elephant trunk. Uh, its, tr- its teeth are bowed outward in the same fashion that a lot of Kanishka's creatures are. And otherwise, it looks like a fish, <laughs> fish whale. Yeah, it's got uh, some the- fins, and the eyes are also pretty, pretty specific. Not really quite like fish eyes, but monstrous all the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, fish whale elephant creature. Yeah, mm-hmm. as we were uh, talking with Grail uh, earlier, uh, it does look pretty badass. Uh, in this two-page spread where it's introduced, uh, completely alien and monstrous looking. And it never quite reaches that level of badassery again, because right in the next episode, when we see more of it, uh, it's not quite as cool uh, in action. It's even, it can even look uh, a bit goofy, even though it's actually a very dangerous creature. But uh, yeah, it's interesting to see uh, how Mira managed to make it look really, really fucking cool. Uh, in, in that shot. And I remember back when the episode was introduced, uh, back in the day, uh, people were, there was all kinds of speculation whether it be uh, an apostle, whether it was Ganishka's apostle form. Uh, and uh, when we saw the rest, well, people were like, oh, no, it's just, it's just a monster, just a big one, that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there was even some kind of a disappointment at the time. Yeah. I mean, I... It- Kind of makes sense. It's, it, it is yet another familiar. It just happens to be a mega-sized familiar. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. It, it actually it is a fish out of water in this battle. You know, the crocs make sense. They're amphibious, purely amphibious. They they work on on land uh, and water, but the makara kind of just be- beaches itself. It kind of propels itself out of the water onto the shore, and, and the the battle to come will take place kind of right on the shore between uh, land and water. So it itself, it's already at a disadvantage. I imagine if it was in the water, it would be pretty difficult to yeah, deal with on its own. for real. Against a ship, uh, yeah. a bunch of these would just destroy a whole naval army. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I imagine that the Kushan weren't necessarily planning on busting this guy out, but we're having him maybe on standby, and the crocs weren't working out, so... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. yeah, I, I imagine so. There's a little bit more detail about that in the coming episodes, but yeah, it does seem that uh, it was kind of as a reserve force. Mm. This is a secondary group of cushions behind this one, uh, the one that Serpico dispatched. Maybe Probably one weren't. thing worth mentioning is that the name Maka comes from Sanskrit and uh, designates a type of sea monster in uh, Hindu mythology. Uh, which is pretty much the case for all uh, wars related to Kushan magic in Berserk. They usually derive from uh, Indian mythology, so Pishasha, uh, Daka, uh, all the other ones, they're all from uh, from Indian mythology. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't notice until I was researching it last night, but uh, the Makara, while it, of course, like most mythological creatures, it had various depictions, but among those depictions is merging land animals with sea animals, and the elephant trunk was a pretty common 
depiction of the Makara. So it wasn't something that Mira glommed on himself. It was just a, one of the many different mythological variations of the Makara. Wow, that's really cool. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Neato. Over to you, Grail, for the episode. All right. Well, the next episode is called Sea Monster or Makara. So we start out. Guts and the group look on in shock as the monstrous Makara approaches out of the sea. Shirky explains that, like the crocodile familiars, the creature has been created by the physical body of an animal being possessed by a spirit. Isidro comments on its massive size, and Shirky agrees that the creature is so huge that the magical bulwark she created around the cabin would have no effect on it. They also can't escape the higher ground, as the Makara is blocking their path to escape. With fighting the creature now their only option, Serpico leaps in to help with his cloak and attempts to slash the Makara's eyes. However, it blows a torrent of water at him with its massive trunk, and he falls right through the cabin roof, roof unharmed only thanks to the intervention of the sylphs. Shirke casts her awareness out to determine the location of the magic users controlling the monster, but discovers that they're too far out to see to interfere with the possession as they did previously. Before they can do anything else, the Bakara has used its trunk to batter and destroy the cabin, further demonstrating its terrifying power. Having clearly exhausted their options, Guts steps forward, desperate, despite his previous battle with the crocodiles leaving him visibly strained. Shirke calls out to stop him, but sees that the Berserk's armor is on the verge of taking over Guts' consciousness. Nonetheless, Guts moves to attack the Makara, and after deftly evading its trunk, blinds one of its eyes and slashes at it. Isidro comments that it's like Guts is back to his old self, but Shirke is horrified. Her fears are justified when a bit of the Makara's blood gets into Guts's mouth, and the taste of it seems to further rouse the Beast of Darkness. Guts's inopportune pause gives the Makara a window to strike, and uses its trunk trunk to fling his Guts's body against the nearby rocks. Before it can do anything, before it can do any further injury, Isidro distracts it with magic berries, and Guts is forced to watch on, powerless to help, as the Makara turns its attention to the group. Finally, at the end of his rope, Guts succumbs to the influence of the armor, and his body is fully encased in its power. Guts jumps right on top of the Makara, blinding it in its remaining eye. The rest of the group watches on in awe and horror as he continues to slash at the creature, doing a somersault to hack off the Makara's trunk at incredible speed. All of this action takes its toll on Guts' body as the astral wound inflicted by Slan reopens and gushes blood. Shirke announces that she will draw Guts' consciousness out of the armor, holding out her staff with determination. Uh, so I, I basically took this episode as, as the natural continuation of the previous episode in terms of how Guts is really struggling with the with the his battle against the armor and trying to keep his consciousness in check. Just how in the previous episode, I really liked how it starts sort of building and building and building. I think that's one thing that Mira always does really well, mm-hmm. is show that slow build until it's undeniable and it's really in your face. But in reality, it was happening, you know, some time ago. Uh, so that was a really enjoyable aspect to me. Yeah. Uh, and let's see. I, I guess I would say that the the 
eventual succumbing to the armor was was a great bit too. It was just how the the beast is kind of just below the surface, and Shirky recognizes that, and she, uh, you know, I think was really disturbed by it, and that just kind of it it, it showed to me that that she and Guts have a different relationship now that they did before, which I also really liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also think, uh, much like the previous episode, the urgency is really masterfully established here in just a few pages. And yeah. um, I mean, it's a way Serpico gets blown away is also a good lesson not to underestimate something you don't know. Uh, and what I especially like uh, in this case is that the armor basically hinders uh, Guts fighting performance because his inner fight against its pull uh, leaves him vulnerable, and that's how he gets uh, sweated away, basically, uh, because he stays still as he struggles against it. So it's a great way to put him in a situation where he has to use it, despite the enemy not being stronger than an apostle would be. Like, uh, if it was just Guts as a black swordsman, he probably would be able to handle this creature, but in this specific context, being wounded, wearing the armor, feeling its pull, while everybody else has been uh, incapacitated, the spell can't work and everything, uh, the issue very quickly becomes uh, about guts and how they're going to be able to handle him now that he's uh, been taken over by the armor. And the way it's done so quickly and naturally, just magnificent. Yeah, to your point, I think it's a great parallel between uh, this situation in Enoch, where Guts had smaller enemies in the form of the trolls, which he dispatched really easily, and then he had the ogre, which also didn't pose as much of a threat as you would think for somebody like that, but uh, it's sort of similar in that he is now struggling where he wasn't struggling before. Yeah. Uh, seeing Guts step up to the fight, I love just the, the opening attack he has where the Makara slams its trunk down and Guts just subtly sidesteps it to make a big swipe, like a surgical swipe right at its eye. That was just so badass. Cool moment. <laughs> yeah. like he's big and it's, it's terrifyingly huge, but Guts is like, yeah, just one step at a time. And you can see him kind of deftly maneuvering around this giant thing. But yeah, it's as, as I said earlier, it's Guts is distracted mostly by the beast. You know, he's not just injured and using painkillers. Basically he's fighting against what's effectively like a mental disability during the fight. So if he had no such limitations, this would be, I mean, I won't, I don't say it's, it won't be a cakewalk or anything, but guts has its own inner fight that he's doing. Uh, it's, uh, more tough for him than this giant lumbering beast. Yeah, for sure. And it's also like Grail right. said with the auger and Enoch, uh, it's a reminder that he's, Two years he spent uh, or more as a black swordsman fighting apostles really made him especially proficient at fighting these kinds of big, huge, lumbering enemies where, you know, he's, he's used to it. I mean, it reminds me mm-hmm. of what Puck said when people were like, oh, my God, he's going to get killed. And Puck is like, no, nah, he's used to these kind of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, talk about Serpico real quick. It is interesting that the water immediately dispatches them that. I wondered about that actually because the self he says the self actually saved him for, uh, by what's the word softening, softening his, his landing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wonder if he was able to be blown back. I actually wonder about the interplay between water and and wind here. If because the cloak itself was drenched, that it couldn't immediately be put back into action or something like that. But oh, I hadn't considered that. I guess that's not the case though because he gets so- the blow is softened by them, you know. But it, he, my point is he doesn't make an, a secondary attempt, you know. That's mm-hmm. it for him. He's down for the count after that hit. Yeah, well, I think just like even though he'd softened his fall, he still got hit pretty hard. 
So mm-hmm. might need uh, some time to get back up to speed. And in the meantime, Guts has entered the fray. Yep. Uh, Shirke sees the beast rising in Guts' cloak, which I thought was interesting because in my head that was just a figurative way of expressing how this works. But she actually reacts to it, you know, coming up the cloak like that. I thought that was interesting. I wondered if anyone else could see that or if it's just because Shirke's a magic user. I, I imagine... Go ahead, Azil. No, I was gonna, going to say, I think it's actually visible because if you look at the way it works, the, it rises up the cloak, then the helmet comes up and slams down. So it's not mm-hmm. just like something is possessing him or anything like that. It's actually the armor getting to action. And the same way we see the black fluid covers his arms, then the uh, metallic part, uh, you know, snap back into place. So it's really, I think, a, a physical, well, I don't know if physical is the proper word, but yeah, a mechanical thing going on, which you can actually see with your eyes. It's not just like her astral vision or anything like that. Okay, that makes sense. That's the other thing this episode did that was interesting was when Guts transformed the first time, we didn't really see it happen. Uh, Now we get to see kind of piece by piece what's happening. The jaws rising up like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, His arms get covered by this what looks like goo, uh, black goo, before the armor completely envelops his his limbs, and we see it covering up his mouth as well, or beginning to cover up his face before the jaws slam shut. And it's just a moment where I don't think it was until this episode that I noticed that the design of the armor itself, you know, the lower jaw is always there. It's where the helmet, you know, where the neckline basically is of the armor. Yeah. It's the lower jaw of the beast. And this way, it completes the design of it. The upper jaw of the head slams shut over the, uh, the lower one. Yeah, Pretty cool. The, ah, the neck guard, yeah. 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 Cool the design. way you describe it makes it sound like a very morbid, like Saint Seiya transformation sequence. He's getting eaten up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, you're right in that this is the first episode where we see it happening because uh, originally we see Gus is already wearing the full armor and he transforms and we see it mm-hmm. open up. But uh, it's the first time we see it actually, uh, yeah, this actual transformation, even though we get uh, a little glimpse. Uh, when they're talking with the Skull Knight, and we see the helmet rise up uh, at his back. But yeah, this is the first time we actually see the full thing. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty cool. Uh, I love the black fluid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking back at the um, the episode thread from years and years ago, from 2004, to see if anyone said anything notable or funny. Not, not really. Uh, there's a lot of talk about... It kind of reminds me of Venom, of uh, the black fluid <laughs> covering up you know, Peter Parker's body before... The symbiote um, costume takes uh, effect, basically. Uh, that's about it. <laughs> the action in here, I really, obviously, I always love to see the beast fight, uh, the way Guts fights as the beast. Uh, the, the flipping he does, always using moves that are spectacularly effective, even if they do hurt, probably, whenever he lands the blows, right? Puts, his, puts himself in danger to make a successful attack. It's just That's the whole modus operandi of when he's fighting with the armor. It's yeah. pretty cool. Hurts Spinning. to watch. The somersault yeah. was like, ooh, that's that's going to hurt later. <laughs> that's about it for me. Yeah. Same here. All right. Then moving on to the sound of the sea. Uh, so the episode opens up as Guts briefly stops after having mangled the Makara. Inside of the armor, his mind is overwhelmed by the sound of the sea in the midst of the night and he feels himself falling deep down to the bottom of the ocean. 
In the real world, this corresponds to him lunging inside the Makara's mouth and exiting through its back, uh, presumably having destroyed his brain. The beast slumps down, dead. Guts comes out of it covered in blood and looking more savage than ever, which worries his companions. Not missing a beat, he proceeds to massacre the crocodiles, who are now docile and confused. Due to the armor, he perceives them only as giant, threatening mouths. This spectacle disturbs the group, and Serpico shares the legend of berserk warriors said to attack friend and foe indiscriminately. Having killed everything else, Guts turns toward his friends. Shuke hasn't managed to get through, and Serpico prepares to interpose himself, but as Guts lunging towards them, a bright light appears and an astral figure stops him in his track. So that's a pretty straightforward episode. Uh, what's noteworthy, of course, is the art. Great art all around, from the opening page to the various representations of the crocodiles as seen by Guts' uh, clouded mind. Uh, to him, surrounded by the dead bodies, up to the last page with a boy facing the armor, which is uh, really great, in my opinion. Uh, I thought it was interesting to see Serpico retelling uh, about Berserkers, uh, in that it formalizes the lore around this kind of warrior within the series, and it's a bit amusing that it occurs uh, 20 volumes, uh, 28 volumes in, uh, <laughs> because until, until then it's it kind of left very vague. Uh, and of course, there's also the first time we see a Guts friends uh, obscured like that as shadowy figures, uh, which is also works, I, I think, pretty well with the crocodiles and everything else. And that's about all I have to say about this, actually. Oh, my goodness. Um, I am still really compelled by the way this opens. Uh, you know, it, mm. it's, it already started with a lot of action, and the end, ended the last episode with a lot of action. But we actually take kind of a pause in the momentum of the battle while Guts is sensing the roar of the sea. And there's this, like, kind of terrifying idea, like, have you ever stood on the ocean at, 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 at nighttime? It's all super dark, and you can hear this massive thing out there in the ocean, but you can't quite see it very well. And he's basically tracking this giant whale creature effectively in the dark. Admittedly, it's a full moon night, but it's pretty dark. And am I getting this right that he does he jump in the water to get the, the Makara? Is the Makara receding? No, no, and no. And then gets, he, jumps in after it's it? It's just his perception. Basically, the sound. Of course, the sound of the sea is overpouring, the waves crashing down, that's what it refers to. And so, hmm. because of the armor, it's, it's a, basically a metaphor for the way the armor is clouding his perception. So, he feels himself falling down uh, deep at the bottom of the sea, and we see that there's a, this row of teeth, basically, that he's falling into. But in actual real life, he's himself just jumping inside the mouth of the, of the Makara, which is just attacking him. So he didn't like recede into the sea or anything like that. It's just his confused perception of things. He doesn't feel like he's moving while he actually is the one uh, attacking. Oh, that is confusing. Yeah. I, I see it now because that, the page where he's, it's Gut's eye mostly as he's yeah. sinking down. That's all Gut's perception. And then the page turns and then you see the beast with the mouth open and sword drawn through the mouth. That's the actual action that's happening while mm -hmm. Guts is perceiving this very clouded perception of things. Yeah, he's actually, it also shows us that he's not really in control. Uh, right. He feels like he's mostly passive. Even in the, after, in the other shots, uh, he's uh, faced with all these rows of teeth. And we see that he perceives himself as swinging his sword to destroy them. 
but that corresponds to uh, in real life he's jumping and doing all these kind of crazy attacks and he's the one impaling crocodiles four at a time right he's not just swinging his sword passively to hold them back to hold them mm-hmm. at bay he's actually actively attacking these like i said docile and confused creatures who are not a threat anymore. So there's a big gap between his perception within the armor and actually uh, what, what he's actually doing in the real world. That makes it even creepier, the fact that he's not even aware of what he's doing outside of the armor. It just, and the whole bit with the sea at night, like, I know what you mean, Walter, like the sea at night is such a creepy image and, and kind of vaguely formed. It, it, the whole th- scene there is very creepy to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what it evokes to me, is mm-hmm. just this big black expanse, and you know something giant is out there, but you can't quite see it. That's that, It's a creepy, unsettling thing as a human being. Yeah. <laughs> Similar to space, really, honestly. Uh, the poor Crocs, man. The poor, poor, poor Crocs. I said it in the first, time I, the first episode of this podcast, but at least at that point, they had a fighting chance, and they were, you know, participants in the battle. Here, they're just... Basically innocent bystanders. They're not even part of the battle anymore, but they get skinned alive, or not skinned, um, chopped literally in half, lengthwise. You do see a crying croc. Peter would have a field day with this episode. Yeah, I I was going to say, it's interesting that they, in a way, they're almost like replacement for humans. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're innocent, and we see that... We see the danger of the armor in that innocent bystanders are being massacred, except they're not uh, humans or dogs or kittens, they're crocodiles. And you could say, well, it's crocodiles, who cares? I mean, crocodiles are scary and (laughs) and so on. But uh, they're actually depicted as really being uh, like powerless and miserable and confused. They don't know what's happening to them. They're not deserving uh, what they're getting. And so this is actually a very interesting way to me of showing, uh, yeah, what someone possessed by the armor is capable of and why that's horrifying even though these mm-hmm. are yeah just crocodiles and we say eh, who cares but actually i mean when i first read this episode i felt bad for them and i still feel bad for them now mm-hmm. yeah big time the way they're running away trying to escape this in panic i mean it's uh yeah yeah and then guts just impaling them all on one big slab basically at one point like yeah. four of them at a time it's ridiculous yeah. even you see draw uh, comments on how it's disturbing to see yeah the guts are sorry, Azalea, you mentioned earlier when Guts is sensing what's happening to him, he just perceives them as giant mouths. Um, and the way it's depicted, it Gabriel really reminds me of how Casca perceives apostles uh, when she's uh, getting attacked by them a couple different times. They're just giant hungry mouths around her. Yeah, when she's attacked by guys and she has his flashback mm-hmm. to the eclipse. Yep, right. Her Her perception of the apostles. In the memory, that's the, similar to what happens here, always visually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. The other thing I thought was really neat was, throughout this whole episode, most of it, Guts is still aware or conscious of what's happening, even though it's kind of through this veil, as we talked about, that kind of keeps him his perception clouded. But there's a point, uh, there's a two-page spread, where it actually diminishes to nothing, where you see him, uh, his, his eye is kind of going down and to the left, and then eventually it just becomes the beast's eye as the speech bubbles get smaller and smaller and further and further away. You know, my taking of that was that at this point, there is no more guts, uh, at least watching along. It's all all beast at this point. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's hard to say because in, in like, even when you see his eye, it's still in that shape. 
you know, in that mm -hmm. uh, Z shape, uh, very uh, specific. But yeah, I think it kind of, um, I would say there's several ways to interpret it. But I do feel like it's uh, probably correct to say his consciousness is, uh, or awareness at least, is diminishing. In that, uh, you know, at first you see he still feels like he's uh, cutting things down. And then yeah. it becomes more and more messy. And basically, to me, it feels like he understands less and less of, of what's going on. Mm -hmm. I see it as his consciousness, consciousness is sinking deeper and deeper. And it, it can kind of unlock this idea a little bit more in the following episode when we see uh, that the boy basically restores Guts' vision. And then Shurike helps bring him out of this darkness. So the idea was Guts was deeper and deeper you know, within the armor and unable to perceive things until there was an intervention. Yeah, uh, I mean, to, so to get a bit into the next step, yeah, what the boy does is he dispels, at least to me, he dispels the armor's black fluid that was mm -hmm. obscuring Guts' perception, which then allows him to see Shurike reaching out to him. Uh, and I feel like to this point about the way his perception is depicted, uh, I feel Mura very creatively uh, equated uh, floor seal with the surface of the water, in this case, when Shuke reaches out. And more generally, instead of simply reusing the same visual metaphor as in Volume 27, with the fire and everything, he went for something completely different mm -hmm. around the sea and the power of the sea, which Shuke comments earlier on, uh, has a lot of relevance in uh, in the, the astral world because it's so deep and vast and, you know, so many things attached to it uh, in, in the imagination. So generally, I feel like it's a, it's a very, very creative and very cool way to represent uh, the Amor's effect on his consciousness. Um, the way the episode ends, just to, to go backwards in time a little bit, we aren't exactly sure uh, from the perception of readers reading this episodically, you know, what's happening with the boy. Uh, we see Shirke is, you know, concerning is concerning herself with magic stuff. She, her eyes are closed. Her staff is forward. And, you know, typically we've seen her, you know, summon things. Right. And then suddenly in the nick of time, something gets summoned <laughs> standing right in front of uh, guts, stopping him from getting to his friends. And, you know, one could reasonably assume, if you slice the episode off right here, that this is the work of Shirke. She found a familiar uh, or a friendly being nearby to step up and, and help in the fight, right? Why not? Mm. That still applies. Mm. Um, but there is this little page, uh, bottom right of the page before the full the ending of the episode, where you see the swirling light right where Casca and the boy are. Kind of gives it away that something happens at that moment. Honestly, I think like even the, just the shape of the body of light, eh, it's pretty clear it's a boy. I mean, mm -hmm. I feel like I can't say I remember 100% uh, what we saw at the time, but to me, I mean, I don't know. I think it looks like the no, boy. No one had any thoughts. I looked, actually. No one said it. No, no, no one had any guesses. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's so hard to say what people were thinking, well, you know, following episodically, because I've only read this in the volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I wonder because it's like th this creature or this being coming out of nowhere, but it's, it, it, whenever I see it, it always makes me think of Griffith because of the hair mm -hmm. and obviously the connection with the boy is there. But yeah, I, I really wish there were more commentary in the thread about that so we could get a sense of what people were thinking. Well, the hair thing only comes up uh, when they're on the solitary island. At this point, the way it's depicted is like a flame. 
So I can say for sure, no one thought the hair was uh, like a Griffiths connection at that time. But later right. on, uh, when he's taking guts out of the sea god's body, uh, they, they, like the way the hair is represented, you get these two strands uh, at the side of his face, and they are very, very specifically like similar to Griffith's hair. And at the time, it was like a, a one more clue that they were related, even though we didn't really need one. But uh, yeah, that, that uh, I remember <laughs> that that was something. But in this one, he only appears with that kind of a flame, a torch-like hair. So yeah, I don't think anybody made that connection at the time. No, mm-hmm. it was much later. All right, I'll take the next episode. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, Superior Being, Jananin. A shining figure appears between Guts and the group, telling him to stop and that these are not enemies. With a touch, it sends the beast reeling backward and opens Guts' eyes. Then Shirke is able to bring Guts to his senses, in a sequence where she appears to dive deep into water and pull Guts out of darkness. The fight is over, and the armor recedes. Guts is frustrated that it ended just like Skolnai had warned him. Isidro and Farnese, however, quickly diminish the actual danger, saying that things kind of worked out well for everybody. But Guts recognizes how close he came to actually killing his friends. And of course, so does Serpico, who kind of wordlessly remembers the danger that he had just been in with trying to protect everyone while Guts was on the rampage. Guts wonders who the being was, even thinking that it might be related to the boy, but he quickly discards the idea. Meanwhile, as they survey the wreckage of the battle, they see that the Makara has returned to its original shape, which is a big whale. And overlooking everything on top of a cliff nearby, with the full moon behind him, the boy looks at the group and departs. Meanwhile, the action changes scenes completely as we go to a ship, a cushion ship. Uh, and on there is a man uh, smoking a pipe, um, a pipe smoke. Hookah. And it's... First uh, introduction of Daiba, who is a big character later on, of course. Daiba lays out the purpose of uh, why the Crocs were there. It was an invading force to make the invasion more seamless. And he says the overall operation was a huge success, wiping out all the inhabitants of the area without a single survivor, except for one group. And he's a little concerned, but thinks that nothing could have stood in the way of their opposing force. And that's... Oh, then we have this beautiful two-page spread of um, the party, Guts Party, back on the beach, Mm. setting off to Vertanus, which they can see just on the horizon as the sun is uh, rising. That's the episode. Um, Quick note, we're not that quick, about the title, Um, Yananin. This is something that puzzled us for a while. It was one of those things where, boy, I wish Mira could explain that a little more, because in parentheses... uh, it says J. Actually, it doesn't say anything. It's all in katakana. Was the issue? The spelling was difficult to decipher for a long time because uh, the katakana. Uh, the word has accents. It's not just plain Romanized letters in English or anything. So, hmm. what it means though is it's a Sanskrit word, similar to how in the previous episodes we had makara for sea monster, and demon soldiers was called daka, and the same kind of logic is being applied here where we're seeing something uh, called superior being, and in parentheticals is saying like the Kushan interpretation of this word is Yananin. And of course, it has many different depictions, but the one I found most commonly referred to is it's actually in the Bhagavad Gita. And it means one who's close to God or one with superior knowledge, a holy person. 
the Bhagavad Gita re- references Yananin a number of times as enlightened ones closest to Bhagavan, which is God in human form, and the ones who know him better than any other being. Kind of sounds familiar if you really think about things from what the boy is and who the boy represents and the form the boy is in, uh, close to, you know, Griffith. Uh, okay, so for the actual notes other than the title, the purpose for this ep- whole scenario, as I said earlier, was to show the danger that Guts poses to his friends. It put him in a scenario where he's, all the enemies on the battlefield are down, and now it's just his friends, and of course he turns to them. So it, sh- it shows the danger of the armor that Guts, is in, Guts places himself in in every battle now, and that he can't do it by himself. He can't just will himself to come out. He requires... Not just Shirke, but in this case, it's a supernatural force to come out and uh, save things. So it's not so easy anymore. I love that his first reaction when he comes out of it is uh, anger and frustration at his own failure and the fact it happened exactly like the Skull Knight had warned him that it would. That's pretty <laughs> funny because it shows that confidence itself is not going to cut it. Yep. Un- unfortunately for Guts. Mm. Uh, the visual of Shirke rescuing... Uh, this this whole episode is filled with really memorable visuals. You know, I really like the the boy standing in front of the beast as its mouth is open. You know, the effect of the boy when it touches it, almost like nerves are crackling or something, or something's cracking, like an egg cracking yeah. kind of effect. That's a great image. Uh, and yeah, yeah, the very, I don't know how to describe it, abstracted idea of Shirke pulling Guts up uh, through the seal in the water with darkness kind of coming off of Guts like he was in deep water. Uh, very, very cool. Uh, what else? I I liked the uh, moment where Shirky and, and Guts kind of have that exchange right after he's pulled out of the armor. I, I really liked that she brought back that line about, well, I don't know how it's translated. Uh, for a dark horse, it says, we'll make you old before your time. But I just liked how she brought back a line that Guts yeah. had said to her. And she did it in kind of an understanding way. And, you know, she didn't try to lecture him or give him the I told you so speech, but she was very understanding about it, which I thought was great for the development of their relationship. Yeah, it's, it's very neat. I agree. Yeah, I still, the translation bothers me because it's a weird, like, <laughs> the flow of conversation doesn't make sense. Um, but she clearly was referencing <laughs> the early conversation. Yeah, I know. Uh uh, Farnese is kind of clueless here. Like, yeah, we should be happy with what we've accomplished. We're all aware of the dangers we put ourselves in, and this is how we've survived so far. But it's like it's like no one it's like no <laughs> one's acknowledging other than Shirke Guts and Serpico <laughs> um, how close they really came to complete defeat right here. Well, I think I mean I agree, yeah. but I think in the same way that Isidro's optimism is funny. Uh, at the same time, he's not really wrong, and neither is she, in that they are always pretty much in serious danger. And it's true that uh, Guts is keenly aware of how tight the situation was, and Serpico even more concerned. I mean, his face is basically the most serious we ever seen in the series, I think, in this episode. Uh, and, and of mm. course, that leads to some big developments in Britannia. But, I mean... That all that is true. At the same time, it's also true that uh, if Gus hadn't used the armor, you know, the Makara might have, you know, put them in uh, serious trouble, like kill, killed all of them. Uh, and the same way that he saved their asses at Flora's place uh, with Granbell. So I get how to say, you, you know, it's true. You might say, well, it's a bit naive from them and they don't really understand what's happening. At the same time, they managed to survive. It's a... Uh, 
what it is. It's just uh, the guts rule. Mm-hmm. I just liked how Farnese and Evalera have that exchange afterwards, which is really funny how she's like, yeah, we got through it. And Evalera says, that's pretty persuasive coming from one who hardly accomplishes anything. And Farnese's really flattered. She says, oh, you think so? <laughs> yeah, I don't I think just love that's that. uh, quite uh, hot say. It works better in the Japanese. Um, I, I should check what the translation is, but... Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I, I just liked how it how it sounded. The general yeah. tone of that conversation was funny to me. It's a continuation of Eva Lira picking on Farnese as being the new subordinate, basically, in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, of course, the boy mysteriously disappearing as well, um, just like he will, you know, in the future. Yeah, and the fact he manages to get on top of the cliff is also, I mean, mm-hmm. another. We, at this point, we don't need uh, another proof that he's uh, special, but that's another thing to add to the list in any case. Yep. Daiba is uh, floating in the scene that we see him. I remember thinking, is he floating? He's definitely floating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we see him doing that later, of course. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, the power that he uses here. So we know that Daiba is a, a magic user uh, of, of an Eastern variety, different than Shirke's uh, discipline of, of magic. But um, he's also inhaling fog, which we know comes from Ganeshka. So he's kind of having it both ways. He's using or inhaling, presumably, the power of an apostle, but he's also using his own magic power to to float. Yeah. So kind of having it both ways. I think he's augmenting his own power. And to comment on... Like, generally, I, I don't remember exactly how he was uh, perceived, um, received when he was first introduced, but I think my take, and from what I remember, I thought he was pretty cool and mysterious, and he's really just like how you'd imagine uh, an Indian uh, Rishi or Yogi, uh, you know, that kind of very, <laughs> very specific uh, esoteric uh, sage or whatever, and... Um, um, how to say, yeah, using the... I remember that him inhaling the fog at the time, my thought was like, well, he's basically like the head priest of the Kushans, and his power is entirely derived from Ganishka. Uh, but as it turns out, and as we'll see later, uh, he's also got his own things. And he mm-hmm. even was... He even had knowledge of uh, magic before he met Ganishka. So, like you said, he's basically augmenting his own powers with the fog, and that's probably what allows him to oversee uh, all of the familiars, the Pishacha, uh, in, in this little battalion. So, yeah, it's an interesting uh, interesting thing. Again, Mira just creatively uh, mixes things together, an apostle's power with magic usage. Why not? Why not? It's actually fucking yeah. cool the way it develops. Mm-hmm. There's a little exchange in this page where um, someone comes in to report to Daiba that the Pisasha mastery of the entire Bay Shore is complete. And Daiba just replies, I'm aware. Because, of course, he's using the fog and the fog is all across the Bay. Yeah. Yeah, he's a cool old guy. I really like Daiba quite a bit. An interesting character arc for him. One of the most, one of the more diverse for the sub characters in, in Berserk to go yeah. from leader of the op, no, uh, you know, second in command effectively of under uh, Ganeshka and being so close to Ganeshka, helping him ascend the throne as an apostle, giving him the Bihirat, being with him from the very beginning in that regard, and then becoming, you know, allied with, you know, um, 
sorry, um, Stilat and everybody else, and Rickard even. Yeah. It was a big Quite career a shift. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting because yeah. I never expected him to survive Ganeshka. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually surprised that he did. and uh, But, like you said, he develops beyond that in interesting ways, and I'm sure it would have uh, gotten us to see some, some pretty cool stuff uh, yeah. later on. So it's an interesting, yeah, interesting thing. There's another line on this page as well where he says, uh, Daiba tells this subordinate to go tell the land general to hurry and advance the forces because their, their side of the operation is complete. So the land uh, operation can commence is the idea. But I do remember that line. There was some focus on it at the time. Land general. This is the next you know big bad guy that we're going to see is the land general. Of course, it turns out the land general is Ganeshka himself. <laughs> so it's kind of circular oh. in that regard. Hey, you know, I'm not even sure in this case uh, it means specifically like Ganeshka. It might just be, you know what I mean, just a, an actual general and telling mm-hmm. the guy to displace his army because I, I, I don't feel like uh, Daibai would be like, oh, tell, tell the emperor to move his army quickly. <laughs> okay, so there was a general, but we never see him and it doesn't matter. Well, the Kanishka is the leader. We probably see him getting his head cut off by Irvine uh, <laughs> in a big battle. That's, that's the lane general. <laughs> in some panel. So. <laughs> it's so interesting to me to think of how uh, episodic readers put emphasis or focus on certain things that don't turn out to be important or, or mm-hmm. the opposite. I feel like that's because when we see uh, when we first see the Kushan army uh, we do get that uh, shot of a shadowy figure on top of an elephant and you know was that the land general uh, you know at the time that was probably Ganishka already and the thing is yeah Ganishka is heading the you know, ground armies in any case but he's probably not the one diabized uh, telling to hurry and advance the armies. You know, he's just heading the force because he's the boss. Uh, but he's not probably not in charge mm-hmm. of the minutia of, uh, oh, okay, we should move these guys here. We should do that, advance like that. Uh, yeah, he's just, he's just a boss. He's there to observe and, if needed, mm-hmm. intervene to crush the enemies. Or, in this uh, case, get crushed. <laughs> to- Grail, to answer your question, you just, as you're reading episodically, you just grab onto anything because there's nothing else to grab onto and chew through. And month by month, you just grab onto any detail you got to talk about past the time. Yeah. (laughs) It's fascinating to me because obviously I remember the episodes that I was reading, you know, uh, back in the day after like 2006. But before that, it's so interesting because you're just reading the volumes and taking Mm -hmm. it for granted, really. Um. I really like this last two-page shot. Uh, CNC back in 2004 did a little coloration of this. It's one of my favorites uh, that, C- that he did. Um, and I really do like that it is thematically relevant that there that Vertanus is on the horizon because they are kind of segueing into a different section, different story section, because once they get to Vertanus, things really kick off in a much different direction. You know, the past several episodes of this volume have been on the beach, on uh, the cabin and all that. And now they're going to go into a human settlement and it's a much different set of scenario. Yeah. I would say that even it's a big departure since uh, what they've been doing since volume uh, 23, uh, because mm-hmm. they were basically just in forest, uh, in marches, plains, basically just themselves uh, hounded by specters. And now they got to Flora, they had to move on. 
they got to the beach and now they're reaching a, a human settlement for the first time in a long, long time. I mean, they've never been to one together. I don't think Enoch would count as a big settlement. And the last time Gus and Casca were in uh, Wyndham, it's a long time ago. Yeah, for real. Very different dynamic for the group yeah. to deal with. Yeah, I can't imagine that Guts himself, even off page or off screen, you could say, would have gone into a human, a, a big city, right? Because, I don't know, because there'd be so many bystanders at that point. Yeah, probably not. I mean, as a black salesman, it's unlikely. Besides, I mean, we see him in the accounts, the mm-hmm. town, the, the city, I guess, the, the count who has overseeing. Castle town. Yeah, that would count as one, but... Probably nothing bigger than that. Uh, yeah. And, and Britannia is, I think, by, uh, how to say, within the world of Berserk, it's a pretty big city. Uh, the likes of which they are probably not uh, every 10 miles. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely not. It's huge. <laughs> well, that's all we have scheduled for today's show. Thanks for listening. Uh, and we'll be back next month with another uh, reread, hopefully closing out volume 28. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Before we go, I wanted to give a shout-out to everybody who's been diligently contributing to our Patreon. The proceeds for that go to Puella, our resident translator, who right now has been working on translating a bunch of stuff, including all of the tributes to Kentaro Miura that were featured uh, in the end of The Last Young Animal that featured Berserk back in September of last year. She just finished the Koji Mori comic uh, about their time as friends. That's an excellent read if you have not checked that out yet. Once she finishes all of those, she'll be working on the big, long interview with the Miura that's in the artwork of Berserk catalog that's sold at the exhibition. So if you liked this show and you wanted to hear just a little bit more, We have many podcasts, but they're between uh, 30 minutes to an hour. Those are released monthly, and they're exclusive to Patreon members. Uh, So we just finished one on From Software's connection to Berserk and our love of 80s movies and and how that era of movies influenced Mira. Uh, Finally, I wanted to thank each of the Gold Tier subscribers who helped make all of this happen. These include Piran, M, Spacey Louse, Rombad, Dark Link, Dirtiest M, Walter, Moto Eternal, Thomas Lambert, Milbs, Jason, Asmer, Guts, Isha, Atokas, and M. That's capital M. That's a different M than before. There are two M's. That's right. Thanks to everybody for contributing. We really do appreciate it. And if you want to help contribute and get some of these awesome bonuses we've just talked about, you can go check out patreon.com sknet.